0: All right, well if you got a Bible, uh we're in Nehemiah chapter five. Uh, last week, uh, we were in chapters uh, 4 and 6, and so we're kind of backtracking a little bit to chapter 5, um, and just to kind of help uh, catch a, catch the themes a little bit better. Um, last week, we were talking about the external opposition um, that Nehemiah faced, and this morning we're going to be looking at the internal opposition uh, that the Jews faced as they sought to do God's will. You've heard the phrase before, uh, it was an inside job, right? Uh, you say you, you, you're hearing about a crime, or you're watching a, your favorite. Um, TV show and they're talking about some robbery that's happened or something in a business and an inside job means someone on the inside, not someone on the outside. Someone that knew the system, someone that knew better, right? They did the deal and um, in a sense, that's what we have this morning in Nehemiah. We have an inside job. Uh, We're going to see that not only is opposition uh, come at us from the outside when we're living for the Lord, when we're trying to advance His kingdom, we're trying to do His will, um, as Nehemiah and the Jews were in this day but many times, opposition arises. From within, in the form of conflict, um, oppression, as we're going to see this morning. Basically, what we're going to see this morning is a story of just indifference uh, towards those that were weaker than one group than the other, Um, and a a story of greed. Uh, And it's just it's a very basic story of not loving your neighbor as yourself, of not loving your brother as Jesus has talked about. And so, as we've been in Nehemiah, we we. We're 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 studying this idea that Nehemiah, and it was in his place in his time in the Old Testament, uh, was seeking to do God's will and 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 play his role in in God's kingdom in the Old Testament, and for him that meant going back from. Um, from the Persian palace where he, had a, where he had a job for the king, as the, a cupbearer to the king, meant going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls that had been torn down and had never been able to be fully rebuilt and established since the Babylonian exile over a hundred years before that. So the, Jerusalem's walls are kind of in ruins. Uh, the temple has been rebuilt. They're trying to restore temple worship. But they're, they're a mockery um, to the nations around them because they don't have city walls. And so they were open to attack and things of that nature. And that breaks Nehemiah's heart. Because he has a heart for God and he has a heart for God's people. So he goes back and he joins God in his mission uh, to advance his kingdom. And he rallies the people of God with him. And we saw a couple of weeks ago how they work together in unity and, and, and community. And we see in chapter 3 is they're, they're grabbing bricks and they're building the wall. And that was that big climactic point. If you're making the movie of Nehemiah, that was the big moment, right? It's Everything's in slow motion as they're building the wall. And the wall's going up and it's like, hooray! And it seems like this could be when the movie could end. But then the movie always takes a turn. And it took a turn in chapter 4 as the opposition began to come against them. The surrounding nations, led by a man named Sambalat, began to come against them and try to thwart this building of the wall because that wasn't in their best interest because they wanted a vulnerable Israel. And so they had to face this threat of war and opposition. In chapter 6, Nehemiah had to face personal attacks and and temptation. and, And they persevered and they continued to build the wall. In chapter 5, we have kind of a pause between this external opposition that is focused on in chapters 4 and chapter 6. And we see that Nehemiah, in the midst of all this, has to deal with an internal opposition. This morning, we're going to see a community on the verge of rupture. Because they're rooted, a group of them is rooted in selfish indifference towards the needs of their brothers and sisters. And they're hurting and exploiting the people of God. And we need to see this morning that how we treat others in the community of faith, if you're a Christian this morning, matters. Right. Um, God has given us, we're going to talk a little bit about this morning Windows. To be able to look into our heart and into our life and to see what our relationship with God's like a little bit. And we're going to see some of those windows exposed this morning. We're going to see, with a particular group of people here in Nehemiah, uh, when you look through the window, what you see is not good. It's a very difficult situation. So look with me, starting in chapter 5, verse 1. We're just going to kind of read it chunk by chunk this morning and and, and, and pause as we go through it because we are going to read the whole chapter. So look with me, starting at verse 1 of chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives, against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved but it is not in our power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So the first thing we see here is the complaint. Right? This is the complaint that arises. The outcry that arises that gets to Nehemiah. They're not complaining about Nehemiah. They're complaining to Nehemiah about something else that's going on. This is is within the community of faith. This is within the Jewish community. This is not them complaining about something going on on the outside this is them complaining about something happening on the inside they fought together they persevered to build the wall been threatened by opposition and were standing that but then we see there's an internal threat that threatens to destroy them in verse 1 that great outcry it says comes up from the people and of their wives which is unusual you don't see in Ezra or in Nehemiah and these books go together you don't, you, don't, you don't really hear from the women in those books So it's unusual that he points out that in this case the women are helping leading the charge. It shows how bad the situation is. It's a little bit out of, out out of nature of their, of their culture for that to happen. And so the women are out crying as well because it's, it's, it's placing an extra burden on them as well as the men spend even more and more time on build, the building of the wall. But what we have here is not a picture of people that are, that are whining about not getting what they want. That's not the situation here. We want this, and this This is not some internal war about that. What we have here is a group of people that are being mistreated and oppressed by the people that are supposed to love them and protect them and look out for them the most. So what's the point of the outcry? Well, the rebuilding of the walls put a lot of pressure on the community. It was an expensive uh, deal, not just in terms of resources, but in terms of people resources, time and energy. It's a demanding task that required a lot of commitment and sacrifice. And the people, however, are not complaining about that. Um, The problem is what has arisen in the midst of the the context and even the famine that was going on in the land while they were doing this. In the context of that, that created an opportunity for some people to take advantage of. In verse 2, you see the complaint was coming. First of all, we see a group of large families that are complaining. You can imagine the people working on the wall. They don't have the time to put into their fields as they once did. And they're having to buy grain and can't afford to buy enough to feed their large family. Those with larger families. An economic crisis is upon them. And the large families are the ones most of all struggling to feed their children. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see there's a complaint also from the landowners. These people were having to mortgage their property to afford to buy the grain due to famine. So a famine, coupled with the demands of the wall building, had created a difficult spot. Some even say they had to borrow money in order to pay the Persian tax on their property. One commentator pointed out that this normal charge was 20%, but it could go as high as 40% in the Persian Empire. So think about that. And then in verse 4, you've got a situation that points out of something called debt slavery, which was a common practice in their day. It was a situation that had become so dire for some families that they were having to sell their children into slavery to pay off the debt. And you worked to the debt paid off. Every seven years, they would release, uh, re- release you out of that, or the year of Jubilee that would come around. Everybody would get released. That was in the law. But in this situation, they're kind of being forced into this because of the bad economic situation. And then in verse 7, you see the situation of interest that's going on. Interest is being charged. Nehemiah points out, um, we haven't gotten to that yet, but you're going to see it. Nehemiah points out that really, kind of what's driving all of this, is that people are in this bad situation, and there are a group of people within the Jewish community, the wealthy people, are using this as a way to get wealthier. And so they're loaning money to people uh, so that they can buy grain and so that they can do these things, but they're charging them interest. You say, Well, that's a p- common practice. It was a sin in the Old Testament for the people of God to charge interest to the people of God. You did not charge interest to your brother. That was against the Old Testament law. That was a sin. They are violating God's law in doing this. They're taking advantage of their brother's bad situation. They don't have money to eat. And they go, I'll loan you money to eat. I give you $5 today, you give me $10 tomorrow. Well, I can't pay you back tomorrow. Well, give me your kid. Right? That, that's, the, that's a simple illustration of what's happening here. It's a very dire situation. Now, the bottom line, when you look at all this, is what you ultimately have is the situation of the people in the community who had wealth and because of their wealth had power and they're being indifferent toward and even oppressing the people who did not have wealth and therefore did not have any power. They were in violation of basic Mosaic law when it comes to charging the interest, especially and even the debt slavery situation is a bad situation. You're not supposed to your law about that, not treating your brother like a slave, treating him as a hired worker, and all that sort of stuff. So there's just a lot going on here in terms of just the the, the socio socioeconomic situation in the community um, that is putting them on the verge of just complete collapse. And what we learn from this is that nothing will destroy a community and nothing will destroy the people of God and the unity in the church like sin among the people of God and against each other. Cold indifference and selfish greed kill they, 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 they destroy relationships. They destroy churches. You know, toxic items are not good, right? We, we, if you have cleaners at home and things that are toxic, especially those small kids, you keep them in the cabinet and you, you have special locks and things where the kids can't get in there because you know if they get that poison inside of them, it's going to potentially kill them. And in the same way, sin, as deadly as it is, you take it and you put it inside the body of Christ, it's toxic. And it destroys. And it's what happens within the body in terms of opposition and conflict and difficulty is way worse, million times worse, than the conflict that comes against us from the outside. See, when people in the church or in the community of faith begin to treat one another as objects instead of family, when your dealings with the body of Christ become more like business decisions and less like family decisions, you're creating a culture of death, of division, not a culture of life. I've never once heard of a church that split over persecution. You hear anything about that? Never heard about a church that, man, the opposition just got so bad against them, and the persecution just got so bad from the outside world, that church just split right into. i I've never heard of that. But I have heard of churches splitting over some pretty silly things from the inside. Because it's always worse, from within the greatest danger to the community of faith, is not external, it's Internal. That's why Jesus, before He goes to the cross in John 17, what's He pray for? He prays for unity among His people because He understood that. That's why Jesus said, the way they're going to know you're My disciples is by your love for one another. It's at the very heart of the Gospel and the very heart of what the church is. That there's not this sin and disunity and this conflict, constantly eating away at one another's one-upmanship, or in particular in this situation, this oppression and using people to advance yourself. And seeing a bad situation and not viewing that as a ministry opportunity, but viewing that as a personal opportunity to advance your own agenda. And that's the situation we have here. So we have to ask ourselves, are we indifferent to the needs of others? That's the real situation here. I don't know. We, we can't know their hearts. I don't know if these people even necessarily were, were definitely even looking at it going, how can I make another dime? As much as they just didn't really care what was going on with the other folks. They charged everybody interest. Why wouldn't I charge them interest? They're just, they're just not engaged in what's going on. They're just indifferent and cold towards the needs of the people around them. Is there an outcry around you? From family, from friends, from people you know that you're ignoring? An outcry maybe even against you. It happens. These things don't just destroy churches, they destroy families. They destroy families. How many families have been driven apart? How many people no longer speak to one another because of internal conflict, because of the sin of the brother versus the brother, the mother versus the daughter, the daughter versus the father, whatever, the husband and wife. That's what tears families apart. It's what tears churches apart. So what do you do about it? What's going on? What, how do you confront this? And that's what we see next, starting in verse 6. It's the confrontation. And Nehemiah confronts it head on. Verse 6, I was angry. And when I heard their outcry, when I heard their outcry and these words, I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations... But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? moreover I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain let us abandon this exacting of interest return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and their percentage of money grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them then they said we will restore these and require nothing more from them we will do as you say And I called the priests and made them swear today as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who do not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So Nehemiah goes straight to the source and deals with the problem. Problems left undealt with don't get better, they get worse. Some of you know people that don't go to the doctor, right? They, they, their, their elbow could be the size of a watermelon. You're like, I think something's wrong with your elbow. They're like, I don't need to go to the doctor. It'll be fine. i will be better tomorrow. You're like, I think you need to go to the doctor. I think that's, well, that's not normal, right? right? I mean, you could look at them and think, like, I think you're on the verge of death. They're like, oh, I'm fine. I'll just yank some orange juice and I'll be, I'll be better, you know? And they just don't want to go to the doctor, right? And a lot of times people have this mindset, I don't want to go to the doctor because I'm afraid I'll find out something's wrong. Well, don't you want to find out if something's wrong? Because listen, letting it be there doesn't make it better. It just gets worse if something's wrong. And in the same way, in any kind of sickness, and including sickness within relationships and sickness within the community of faith, when it just lays there, it doesn't get better. It doesn't fix itself. It doesn't heal itself. It just gets worse. Bitterness happens. And people go and you go and talk to your group and you go and you talk to your group and what turned out to, is two people that had a disagreement turns out to a lot of people that have a problem. So you have to deal with it. And when, when there's oppression and when there's, there's greed and when there's these situations happening within the community of faith, you have to deal with them. And that's the situation we see here. Nehemiah deals with it. The first thing we see is his emotion in verse 6. He got angry. It's okay to get angry. Not all the time. There's a th- such thing as righteous anger and unrighteous anger. And the Bible says, be angry and do not sin. There's, there's a righteous anger. But nine times out of ten, I'm willing to bet, when we get angry, it's not very righteous. When we get angry, it's because we've been offended by something personal. It's our rights that get violated. But in this situation, it's righteous anger because it's the law of God that has been violated. And so it's a righteous anger. And the closer we get to God... And the closer our heart gets to being more like His heart, the more we'll love the things He loves, and the more we'll hate the things He hates. That's what it means when Ephesians 5 tells us to be imitators of God, to become more like Him, to have His heart in these situations. And so when you care about what God cares about, that will stir your emotions. What stirs Him will stir you. And everything about who we are, even our actions and reactions towards sin and problems and these sort of things, should be shaped by our knowledge of God through the Gospel. And so we see here Nehemiah, he's angry. But then we see, the, we, we see logic come into play in verse 7. He took counsel with himself. Now what does that mean? Is he talking to himself? Does he sit down and have a good talk with Nehemiah? Uh, no, what it means is, he, he gathers his thoughts. He, does, he, ha, he gets angry, but his anger doesn't have him. He sits back and he, he's always planning. We've seen that for the last few weeks. He's always got a plan. So he sits down, he calms down, he gathers his thoughts, gathers himself, gets control of what's going on, and thinks about, okay, now what's the real problem here and how do we solve it? Because you can't deal with problems simply on emotion. Right? He didn't get angry and just go you know, and just go tell them off. It didn't work that way. He said he, he 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 took counsel with himself and then he went. And that he takes action in verses 7-9 through when he charges them with their wrongdoing. One commentator said he basically brings lawsuit against them. He he brings them in front of everybody because this is is affecting the entire community. And he says, here's the situation and here's the problem and I'm going to charge you in front of it because this group is about to destroy this group and you're about to destroy our whole community. Because they're transgressing God's law. So... What's he acting against? Well, the core issue he's taking against, uh, taking issue with here are all sin issues. And the reason they had mistreated their brothers, for instance, by breaking the Mosaic Law and charging interest, for, for one example, was because their hearts, whereas Nehemiah says in verse 9, not walking in the fear of God. Listen, Look at verse 9. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? So what, He's asking it in rhetorical form, but what is he saying? He's saying, you're not walking in the fear of God. And therefore... You're not preventing the taunts of the nations. You're, you're encouraging. You're making us a laughing stock. Their problem with their brothers was stemming from a problem with God. That's what we're driving in here. To walk in the fear of God means to live in a way that shows that reverence and awe of God. At the very basic level, it means we obey God. We, we obey His Word. It would also affect how you treated one another because His Word tells us how to treat one another. And your relationship with God will tend to manifest itself in your personal relationships with others many times. And this led to, this not walking in the fear of, the God, of God led to the taunt of the enemies. At a time when the Jews were already battling opposition from without and being jeered and taunted by the nations around them, their rebellion against God's law and lack of compassion and generosity towards, one, towards the weak in their community was only giving the enemy more reason to taunt them. It was only making them look weaker. It was only making them look even more like a group of sitting ducks. Now remember the big pictures. What's the whole purpose of the Jews? Why did God choose them, right? Well, to be a light to the nations. They, they had a mission, right? The, the whole mission to reach the world didn't start when Jesus came on the scene. Jesus came on the scene to fulfill the mission. And ultimately that mission had also been charged to the Jews from the very beginning. To be a light to the nations. A light to the Gentiles. But they're failing to do that because they're being taunted by the Gentiles because of their behavior. Because you can't be a light to the world if you're a joke to the world. And that's the situation we see here. We're called to care about injustice and oppression. And how can we do that in the world if we can't even do it within our own people group? If the people of God aren't a family of compassion and empathy and generosity, if love is not our defining ethic in how we relate to one another, how do we reach the world? We don't reach the world, we will repel the world wants to join that family. See, there's two windows in, uh, I see here into our hearts that can show us whether we're walking into the fear of God or not. Now there's more than that. Jesus gives us some when He talks about it. But this is what we see in this text. Two ways for us to, to look in. You know, because that's what when, when you build a house, you put windows on it. And windows allow you to see out. allows other people to, to see in. It allows light into the house. And oh, a house without windows is a creepy house. It's a basement, right? Um, a van without windows is something to steer clear of. And here, we, what we're seeing here is God has built you and He's built you with windows. You say, nobody can look at my heart, nobody can see my You're absolutely right. We can't know a heart, we can't judge a heart, we can't condemn a heart. But I can promise you, God's put windows into your life for you and for others to be able to see how your walk with God is. And the first one we see here is how we relate to people. They were indifferent and cold and how we treat others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, reflects our relationship with God. The Bible says if we don't love our brother, God's love's not even in us. They're, that's God saying, here's a window. Alright? You want to look into your heart a little bit? Look through, do you love your brother, first John? If you don't love your brother, he says, Well, I love my brother. I tell my brother I love him all the time. He says, No, I don't love him that way. He says, if you say I love him, but you're not but you see his need and you're not willing to meet his need, you don't love your brother. You just like saying I love you. And he said, no, 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 it's a window into your heart. How we relate to one another is a window into our relationship with God. How are we doing in fulfilling what Jesus has said is the second greatest commandment? How we do with that reveals many times how we're really doing in the first greatest commandment. Are you indifferent or compassionate? Are you forgiving or spiteful? Are you cooperative or combative? Do you use power over others to lift people up or to use and exploit? That's the situations we see happening here. There's another window though and that's the relationship with their money. These people were greedy. That's why they're charging interest. They're already wealthy, they're already rich and now they're, they're using the situation to get even more money. They did not use their wealth as a blessing. They only hoarded more and more. Do we use our money to bless others? or Do we have money or does money have us? See, when we're indifferent towards people, when we do not steward our money in a way that honors God, when we abuse our position of power, when we use people, it reflects... But yeah, we have a problem with people, but it's a bigger problem. We have a problem with God. That's why in this morning, if you were in small group, you saw the situation in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, when your brother has something against you, you lay it down at the altar and then you go make it right because it affects your worship. That's how we know. Because Jesus told us to. He said, stop worshiping and go fix that and go repent and then come back and worship. Jesus is telling us. It affects it. These are windows into our heart and our relationship with God. And then in verses 10 and 11, we see He gives an invitation. Right? He gives them the opportunity to repent. He says, He urges them to abandon their practice of of interest and return all the property. He calls them to repent and to show that repentance by their action, to bear fruit of repentance. Because repentance is more than, I'm sorry. Repentance is, it's it's a change of mind and heart that will manifest itself and change life. Nehemiah is calling them to get lined up with God in His Word. He's just calling them to do what, what they were already supposed to be doing, what they already knew was right. And then they responded in verse 12. The people responded with repentance. They they repented and they, they made a covenant. They made a promise that they would give all this stuff back and they would stop. And in Nehemiah, to show how serious that he takes this thing, he calls the priest in because they would enact this promise, this covenant, and he makes them make this official covenant in front of everybody to hold them accountable. Like, everybody's going to see this, that you're going to give all this back and they're going to stop. There's going to be some accountability here. And he does something we, we think is kind of strange. It says he takes the fold of his garment and he shakes it, right? And he basically says, if you don't do this is I'm taking my garment and shaking it right now. May God shake you. <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of like, whoa, that's like something like Jeremiah or Isaiah would do, like a prophet would do. And, and this is Nehemiah, this, this layman who's left his job to go build some walls and he's acting like this prophet in front of them right now. But this was very common in their day. And one commentator pointed out that they would use the fold in their garment to, to put stuff in a lot of times like a pocket. And so, in a sense, it's like he's shaking his pockets out in front of him, saying, "You see all this junk's falling out of my pocket? That's how God's going to shake you, and every good blessing in your life is going to fall out." Is what I'm is what I'm calling over you, if you don't hold to this. And the whole point of this very visible, like, "Oh my goodness, Pastor, please don't do that this morning." Every the point of this is, as though this is serious stuff. This is serious stuff. This isn't a small thing. This is a big thing, and that's why Nehemiah does this. And when all is said and done, what we see is the assembly, those charged and those wronged, all say amen. And it says, and then they praise the Lord. Because when the people deal with their issues, when the oppression stops, when the using one another stops, when the the going at one another stops, then you can worship together as one. And we see that's what happens here. It, It culminates in worship. Now, The world needs to see the church as serious about the church's sin as they see us serious about the world's sin. It's real easy for us to get passionate about the sin we see in the world, right? But you're not going to give an account for the Supreme Court's sins. You're not going to give an account for your least favorite politician's sins. You're going to give an account for your sin. And so we can go and we can yell and we can gripe and we can banter on Facebook and do whatever we want to about the sins of those people out there. But if we don't deal with our sin, within us and within our community, that's a problem. That's a problem. We can't look at the world and say, repent and believe the gospel, if all we practice is, I believe the gospel. We've got to practice repentance. We've got to practice repentance if we believe the gospel. Maybe some of us this morning have things like this in our lives that we need to deal with. Wrongs that need to be righted. Apologies that need to be given. Relationships that need to be healed. Our relationship with our brother or sister reveals what our walk with God is like many, many times. If you're indifferent, if you're cold, if you're oppressive, then I promise you, you need to repent. You don't have to I pray about that. Let me think about that. No, no, you need to repent if that's the situation. Maybe this morning you need to repent of poor financial stewardship. I know that's a hard thing to bring up, but are you generous? Do you have money? Does money have you? What's the situation there? What we're going to see here is Nehemiah is going to give us a picture in the last section. We've seen this picture of horrible use of people and horrible use of money. A set of people that we looked through the window and what we saw was not pretty. And it showed us that they didn't walk in the fear of the Lord. In the last section, Nehemiah is going to show us a picture of what it looks like to practically... Be able to look in the window and see someone who lives in the fear of God. Look at verse 14. We're going to see the character of Nehemiah on display. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years neither I nor my brother ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land. And All my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense... For each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because their service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah is showing us a picture of someone who practices what they preach. He didn't just preach generosity and compassion and loving one another. He practiced it. He shows us what it looks like to put indifference and to put to put off indifference and put on compassion to put off greed and to put on generosity. He shows us while not perfect, a picture of what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. And at some point, what we understand is that Nehemiah became governor. Now we don't know exactly when that happened. It could have been he could have went back and then made governor and sent back or it could have happened while he was there stationed in Jerusalem, but at some point he became governor, we see. And he's the ruler over these people. And when there's a practice among the people um, of something called the governor's allowance. And basically what that meant was governors were allowed to tax the people to take care of their own personal needs like their own food and housing and all that sort of stuff so they could just put a tax out there on top of the Persian tax. And he doesn't do that. They're, they're allowed an allowance, right? To be able to eat and etc. And he, he, doesn't, he doesn't take of that. Now why did he refuse this? Well he says I did this, I refused this because of the fear of God. Even though it was my right... Under the, under the legal law of Persia, I did not do this out of fear of God. Just as a lack of fear of God caused the wealthy oppressors to take advantage of the poor, the fear of God had caused Nehemiah to treat them with compassion. See, he's got the same two windows on display here in this part of the book. His relationship with people. In, his, in verses 14 and 16, we see he's compassionate, not indifferent. He's not lording His power over the people. He's serving them with it. He didn't want to lay a burden on the people. He said, why didn't He tax the people? He said, I didn't want to lay a burden on them. He knew the financial situation. He knew that people had to sell their kids in the debt slavery. He knew that the interest situation. He knew about the famine. He knew the financial dynamics of what was going on. So He basically said, I don't need your money. And He didn't lay a burden on the people. And rather than take advantage or lord His power over them, according to chapter 5 verse 16, He worked on the wall with them. He didn't just have them out there working on the wall, he was out there working on the wall. He didn't it says he didn't acquire land, so he could not have been one of those kings taking people into debt slavery that we just talked about. One of those people, excuse me, not kings, one of those landowners. And what we're seeing here is Nehemiah is basically saying, Look, I came to serve this people, not exploit this people. I came to do something with these people, not, not, not just lift myself up amidst these people. But we also see his relationship with money is different than theirs. In verses 17 and 18, we see he's very generous and not greedy. Not only did he not take money, he used his personal resources to bless others. He didn't just say, hey, you can't afford this, so don't worry about it. He said, he fed 150 people a day. Did you catch that? Out of his pocket. So you know what that tells me about Nehemiah? Dude was rich. Can you feed 150 people a day? I mean, do you, you see the feast that he's, that he's putting out there? I mean, it, it, it's, it's extravagant. Right? He's wealthy. But he doesn't use his wealth to burden people. He uses his wealth to bless people. He's obviously wealthy. Look at the size of the crowd. Look at the amount of the food that it talks about there. And what we see here is we need to understand something. It's very easy to read something like Nehemiah 5. When you're reading the first... Ten verses into it, you're kind of like, yeah, see, poor is good and wealth is bad. Rich people are bad people and poor and poor people are good people. And that's not the story of the Bible. That's not true. That's not accurate. There are there, there are sinners with money and there are sinners with no money. We're all sinners. But at the end of the day, having money is not a sin. Being wealthy, being rich is not a sin. If God has blessed you and you have more than others, that is not something to feel guilty about unless you stole it. You just feel guilty about it, right? But if you're just wealthy, you're just rich, you shouldn't feel guilty about it. And we have to be careful because sometimes even in Christian culture, there's almost like this guilt that can be heaped on people because they have more than others. And that's not at all the picture we see in the Bible. In fact, 1 Samuel 2.7 says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. Who's sovereign over your wealth? God's sovereign over your wealth. Proverbs ten twenty two, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Who whose blessing makes rich? The Lord's blessing makes rich. Psalm twenty four says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Listen, he is sovereign over everything. He's in control of everything, and he is sovereign over everything. And what we need to understand is that if the Lord makes rich, and if the blessing of the Lord can make rich, then being rich or being wealthy is not a sin and is not wicked and is not evil. Abraham was wealthy, David was wealthy, Solomon was wealthy. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And we see godly people in the Bible that were both wealthy and that were poor. We see both, And we see God use both people. We see the Kingdom advance through both people. We see the Gospel go forward through both people because having money is not a sin, but listen, money having you is a sin that 's a problem and it is a problem if money 's your idol, if you love money right we talked about gateway sins the other day about when we talked about the fear of God, the fear of fear of um, not God that fears people and just fear in general. The Bible tells us not to fear is kind of a gateway sin and it enables us to get into all sorts of other sins. Well, the love of money does the same thing. It it empowers us to feed our idols many times. It's a sin. And it's a sin to be repented of. And it may manifest itself in ways like a lack of generosity, greed. You don't use your wealth to advance God's work, you, you don't use it to bless others. It doesn't even enter your mind. What we learn from Nehemiah is it's possible to live not indifferent towards others, but engaged in their lives. It's possible to be both wealthy and godly. When we walk in the fear of the Lord, it will shape all of our lives, how we treat others, how we handle money. Every area will be touched. And there's no area in your life that your relationship with God will not impact. And then that will begin to impact your relationship with others and Nehemiah ends all this with this I I love the way he ends it here and it confuses people and they're like what does this mean is he being selfish remember for my good oh my God all that I have done for this people and people point out the point of this is it's religiously motivated Nehemiah's desire is not simply compassion towards people which is a good thing it's a heart For God, It's his relationship with God. It's, I want to please God. I want want to live for God. So I'm stewarding my wealth. The way I bless people. The way I treat people. It's really, it's about my relationship with God. I'm walking in the fear of the Lord. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. You see, what's Nehemiah saying there when he says... Remembers me for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. I believe he's expressing the truth of Hebrews eleven six that he believed God was real and that he was a rewarder of those who seek him and he was looking forward to the reward. His eyes weren't set on the here and now. His eyes were set on eternity. His eyes were set on giving an account before the Lord. And he lived in such a way, in the way he treated his brother and in the way he stewarded his wealth that reflected that. That reflected that, that he, he was walking in light of eternity in his relationship with God. And if you and I are going to be people that reach our neighbors and that reach the nations, then we're going to have to be people that walk in the fear of the Lord. That chooses not to walk in indifference towards one another, but compassion, not in greed, but in generosity. And the people that do that are the people with an eternal perspective with eyes not on self, but on God. And listen, the gospel of Jesus forms that type of people. The Gospel teaches us that God's not cold and indifferent towards the needs of others. But compassionate. It teaches us God's not stingy and greedy, but He's generous. Matthew 9.36, I love this verse. It gives us a picture of Jesus. And He's looking out over a crowd of people. And it says, when He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looked out over people... He felt compassion. That was his instinct. He looked at them as a shepherd. He said, I want to shepherd these people. They're they're harassed. They're helpless. They're being led astray by their own sin, by their own problem." And it gives us a a picture, and really the, the bigger picture, which is when Jesus looked out at a sinful world broken and poor due to our sin, with nothing to offer Him but our sin, He came. Right? Out of compassion, out of of fear of God, out of obedience to the Father, and out of compassion towards us, He came and He operated in extreme generosity. Though He was rich, the Bible says, He became poor. He confronted our sin, He dealt with it so it could be rid of. And He shows us what it looks like to love, to be generous, to be compassionate, because we see that example in the cross. And if you're a Christian... It is due to the compassion and generosity of God in Jesus Christ that you're a Christian. And the radical engage, engaging of the grace of God, radical grace that has been lavished on us in Jesus, is the only reason that we have right standing before God. So if that is true, and we believe that's true, right? I mean, you, you can be very young in the faith, and believe that's true. If that's true, if that's the gospel that's gripped us, selfishness and indifference and greediness and coldness is no longer excusable among the people of God. The gospel does not allow it. The gospel melts our hearts and God begins to change our hearts because in Jesus, we have a better example than Nehemiah. We have a better builder than Nehemiah. We have a better kingdom advancer than Nehemiah. We have in Jesus the one who has come to build his church. And we have in Jesus the one who has come to save his people. We have in Jesus the one that Nehemiah points us forward to. And the one that shows extreme compassion and extreme generosity and changes us into a generous and compassionate people. The people who know and believe the gospel must be the people who live out its ethic. Nobody else is going to do that. Nobody in the world is going to live out the gospel ethic of love and compassion and generosity towards others. Only the people formed by the gospel will do that. The people that are believing the gospel and appropriating it into our life. Nobody else is going to do it. It's on us. So what if we don't do that? There's no plan B. We're it! We're plan A! We're it! There's no plan B. God is, it's, it's on us to live out. the. It's only the people impacted by the gospel will live its impact. We've got to be those people. So when we apply the truths of the gospel to our relationships with one another, and the way we steward our resources, we become a community that the outside world recognizes belongs to Jesus. We've said this before, but Jesus didn't say, hey, when they see your sign, when they see your steeple, when they see the big cross out front, hey, when they see that t-shirt, when they see the, when they see the Jesus fish on your car, when they see the, the, the radio station that you're turned to, when, 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 when they see these things, they'll know. They'll know that you're my people. No, when they see you show up at their door with a flyer and invite them to an Easter event, and when they when you when you hand them the four spiritual laws, they'll they'll know that you're my people. Jesus, no, they'll know you're my people by your love for one another. That is Jesus' greatest evangelism strategy for the church: is to make us such an irresistible community that the people people can be putting us to death, and people are still getting saved and joining that community. That's how the church can advance in very difficult places like in the Middle East where it's hard to be a Christian and people still get saved and come to know the Lord because the Spirit's still at work and it's not because there's billboards outside telling you to come to church. Nothing wrong with those things but it's, it's the community of people that are being shaped and formed by the Gospel. that's attractive to people. You want to be the kind of people that old lost guy looks at and says, you know what? I'm not a Christian and I don't believe what they believe but if I was ever going to become a Christian... That's the people I want to be with. Because they love people. And they love one another. And they're generous. And they're not cold and indifferent. They are compassionate. That's the kind of people, if I believe that, that's where I'd want to be. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of people we want to be. Let me ask you this morning, as we close. Do you know, first of all, the compassionate and generous Jesus? Do you know the one who's laid down his life for you? so that your heart can be changed into a heart that fears and knows God. Has there been a time in your life where you've repented of your sin and believed on the Gospel? Jesus' death and His resurrection on your behalf to make you right with God. Not your generosity and not your compassion. Those are fruit, right? Those aren't what convert you. That's the fruit of conversion. Have you trusted in Jesus and what He's done to save you? That's number one. Number two, are you walking in the fear of the Lord today? If you take a peek into the windows, what do you see? generosity or greed, compassion or indifference? Do we love our brother? And is there a sin today that you need to deal with? Is is there something today that maybe don't even have anything to do with what we talked about, that the Lord has just put on your heart today? Something you need to deal with, something you need to repent of. It's not going to get better if you wait. Maybe there's a relationship that needs to be healed and restored. Maybe there's a habit that needs to be stopped. I don't know. But there's an urgency that comes with the people of God to know sin is a serious deal and something to be dealt with. Let's get angry first with our sin and deal with our sin before we go and start trying to get angry with other people's sin. All right, let's pray.